This is a crusade. This is a holy war against the deep state. Where are the dictators? Where are the strong men? Donald Trump is our instrument for retribution. I'm going to fight for Christians. I'm going to fight for white people. They have the Great Reset. We have the Great Awakening. And why shouldn't I root for Russia? Because Which I am. I want to see these people go through misery because of their grooming against our children. After the assailant entered the home asking, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Those are the very same words used by the mob when they stormed the United States Capitol. I did nothing wrong. Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. Once again, the white supremacist group known as Patriot Front are back in the news. And once again, some of the dumbest people are saying that the entire group are actually feds and a psyop. On this episode of the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, I talked to the author of The Age of Insurrection, David Nywert, to try and get to the bottom of this. Stick around. What do you say to people that call you guys feds? Uh, I'm not a federal agent. My name is Thomas Ryan Rousseau. Um, the group is funded internally. Um, when we need to be funded, members pay their own way. Um, the federal government doesn't like us. The FBI doesn't like us. If we were run by the feds, then we would be committing violence. We'd be setting up acts of terrorism, which is what the FBI does. But you saw here today, we walked past thousands, 10,000 pedestrians, right? If we were here to cause violence. You think we would have laid a finger on somebody, but surely we didn't, right? If we were here to make people look bad, then why would we do so many charitable works, right? Why would we, we, why would we be so peaceful? Why would we care so much about American culture and heritage if we were just to, supposed to be some sort of cartoonish people look bad? It doesn't make any sense. The arguments fall flat. Uh, conservatives, a lot of mostly it's conservatives, say that we're feds because it's an argument of convenience, because they don't have to be associated with us if we're not real. But the fact is, every day, every year, we're going to stay out here. We're going to keep doing demonstrations. We're going to keep making ourselves known in the public space, and they're going to have to come to terms with our ideology. Everybody is. Everybody's going to not have to have an opinion on Patriot Front as to whether they're real or not, but nationalism, patriotism as a political ideology, and they're going to have to have those answers when people start asking. David, welcome back to Did Nothing Wrong. It's great to have you on again. <laughs> Always good to be here. So last weekend, the white nationalist group known as Patriot Front was in New York City, and they did their usual Patriot Front thing where they march around in masks, attract as much media attention as possible while trying not to get arrested or beat up, and then they left. This is their usual routine. They've done this pretty much everywhere they've gone, and it seems like the people on the right absolutely cannot or will not process that these people actually are who they are, which is a bunch of mid-20s Nazi dirtbags. Right. Instead, they make up all kinds of stories about what's really going on here. They've been called everything from a psyop to feds, and now we've got Alex Jones in on the act who's promised to reveal the real story, which should be absolutely something else. Yeah. And the most annoyingly persistent rumor out of all of this is that they were supposedly not unmasked and the media doesn't care when in fact many journalists, including yourself, were on hand in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, when they were all arrested for conspiracy to riot and took plenty of pictures with this group with their masks off. Yeah. You wrote a great piece for Daily Coast about it, which actually includes a list of names of everyone arrested. Can you walk me through that day and what happened? Sure. Well, you know, yeah, June 11th, 2022, uh, it was, you know, Pride in the Park. And the reason I had driven over to Coeur d'Alene to cover it was that a variety of right-wing extremists were planning to uh, sort of threaten this event. 
and we knew that from at least a month beforehand when or I think a month and a half before when the Panhandle Patriots uh, sort of semi-militia outfit is actually a biker gang announced that they were planning to show up and hold a counter event next door that was uh, all about bringing your guns. And they wound up changing that to, they, they, they call it Gundelane. And it was actually a commemoration of the time, what was it, two years before, when there were these wild rumors of Antifa buses floating around the entire country. Oh, I remember that. And uh, people would show up. And one of the places that this these rumors flew was in Coeur d'Alene. And what they wound up having was the streets of Coeur d'Alene being <laughs> riddled with uh, guys driving around with their pickups and their AR-15s and wearing camo gear and looking for the Antifa bus that never showed up. <laughs> Because, of course, these rumors are actually hoaxes. Of course. And, you know, these, this event occurred in a lot of places. Uh, Klamath Falls, Forks, Washington, uh, Redding, California. One happened in Columbus, Ohio. You know, they, it was all over the country. And they were hoaxes. But uh, that didn't stop people from uh, promoting the hoax beforehand. I mean, among the guys that promoted it beforehand was uh, Marco Rubio on Twitter. Ah, uh, little Marco. Yeah. So, yeah, I was, you know, this stuff filters up to these supposedly establishment conservatives who then help promote these uh, these conspiracist ideas. And this bullshit is what it is, of course. But so they originally planned their counter-protest to uh, Pride in the Park in June of 2022 as an anniversary of the uh, the big scare in Coeur d'Alene when they, and they called it Gundelane and that was going to be the uh, counter event for Pride in the Park. But that really raised a lot of um, uh, red flags for a lot of people. And so they shortly afterwards announced that they were changing it to a, uh, a day of prayer. <laughs> right. And what this meant was that actually the counter event next door at the park next door was a Christian nationalist event led by, as it turned out, Matt Shea. Oh. And uh, a lot of his people. Uh, Matt Shea, of course, is the radical ex-legislator from Washington State who got chased out of the legislature for his ties to domestic terrorists. Right, right. Hanging out with people like Stuart Rhodes and whatnot. Yeah. And so, you know, I was there that morning of June 11th, and most of the day was extreme, was very peaceful. Uh, certainly the Pride in the Park event itself was a lot of fun and, and very pleasant, but it was also very ominous because all around it, these guys were circulating, uh, several of them wearing, you know, if not side holes, you know, holstered handguns, some of them had those, but more notably, we had a couple of characters walking around with their AR-15s. Hmm. One of them was masked, one of them wasn't. Great. So, yeah, it, it made everybody pretty uneasy. And, you know, there were the people walking or uh, the 
Christian nationalist protesters who'd show up with uh, some of them had signs uh, referring to scripture, you know, Leviticus. Ah, uh, yeah, the taken out and killed and all that. Yeah, yeah, that that homosexuals deserve the death penalty. Of course, right next to the people who eat shellfish, you know. Yeah, and then later in the afternoon, so a bunch of these characters unfurled a banner that said, groomers are not welcome in Idaho. Right. And that was uh, just about the time that I got the word that police were arresting a large number of protesters up on the main avenue. So I ran up there and uh, found all these... Well, the time by the time I got there, there were about 28 of them. Right. They'd already started processing them. And the first guy apparently that they processed was Thomas Rousseau, the leader of Patriot Front who had organized this whole thing. Right. So I didn't get any pictures of Thomas, but I uh, got pictures of 21 of the 31 characters that they pulled out of this U-Haul van that was uh, as it approached the park. They basically pulled the van over and then just arrested everybody that was inside. And they hogtied them and set them on a grass berm right above the park. <laughs> and that was the scene I walked up to. And then they started processing them one by one. And like I say, I've, I photographed 21 of them as they were being unmasked. Right. And, you know, and then, of course, the police, Coeur d'Alene police, uh, released the names of these guys. And they had their own mugshots uh, that they took down at the station. But I... I like my own pictures better. <laughs> You've got a little more genuine feeling in the, the pictures I got on the street than what you get in a mugshot. So then I got several shots of what I call the Ruby, Ruby, Roo, a moment uh, when <laughs> as they pulled the mask off each of these guys. And I would have gotten away with it too, if not for you meddling kids. <laughs> meddling kids. Seriously. <laughs> Wow. So, yeah, a number of these guys have had their day in court. Uh, I think some of them have actually served their, you know, 30-day sentence because uh, this was just a, it was a misdemeanor that they were charged with. Right. Which still is really bothersome to me because these guys, uh, and it really bothers me that the DOJ didn't get involved and they knew about it. Right. Because this was interstate conspiracy to riot. And when you cross state borders, you've immediately committed a felony. Right. How is that a misdemeanor? I don't get that. Uh, if you're doing you're part of a conspiracy to riot. Right. And I didn't get why this was a misdemeanor. When I saw the conspiracy to yeah. riot charge, I was like, ooh, they're going to do time. But then yeah. misdemeanor? What? Yeah. How's that a misdemeanor? Most of them were uh, misdemeanors. You know, and, and some of them haven't showed up. Some of them refused to show up. Uh, Graham Whitson, their videographer who uh, wasn't wearing a mask that day, is among the people who haven't shown. Mm -hmm. And... Then, but on the other hand, a couple of them have, yeah. Oh, and then, of course, then there was the fellow from Utah who it turned out he had child porn on his phone. And so he was charged with that. And that was actually a much heavier uh, charge that he faces now. Right. Right. But anyway, yeah. And then they wrapped them all up and we all went home. And the, the people at, the, at Pride in the Park were relieved that nothing happened. These guys had had a written plan for what they were going to do. They were planning to come down and, and basically create what they called a confrontational dynamic. <laughs> <laughs> and then they, after they create, you know, created a riot down there, they were planning to march into downtown Coeur d'Alene. 
So it was a carefully laid out plan. Right. Of course, it was easy for me. I, I had been writing about Patriot Front really kind of since they started up. i pretty sure I did the very first report for the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, on its Hate Watch site. On these guys, right. Yeah, pretty early on in the whole career things. And I had, you know, nailed down who Thomas Rousseau was and what he was up to and what he was about. Right. And what the movement was about. I mean, they've become more, um, I should say, discreet about what their ideology is. Since they started up, uh, initially they put out flyers saying, you know, things like uh, fascism, it's what's next for America. (laughs) And, you know, they were unrepentantly proto-fascist and then realized that this was probably a bad look. So they cut back on the fascism talk, but that's still what they are. And you can see it in their flags. I mean, that's that thing in the, in the blue part of their flag is a fascist. So pretty obvious if you know what to look for. Yeah. So what can you tell us about the history of this group? You mentioned that they were a product of Charlottesville. At one point, this was a bigger thing called Vanguard America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Vanguard America was a pretty sizable um, neo-Nazi slash alt-right organization that played a key role in what happened at Charlottesville, including James Shields, the man who drove the car that Dodge Challenger into the crowd of protesters and killed a woman and maimed, I think, 14, 15 others. James Shields was uh, part of the Vanguard America contingent that day at Unite the Right. And Vanguard America was, you know, one of the organizations that specifically helped organize and prepare for the Unite the Right event in, in Charlottesville. And, you know, and they were doing it all online. But yeah, and Thomas Rousseau was a major player in it. In fact, he was uh, believed to be in charge of vetting the crew that turned out for Charlottesville. And there are photos of Thomas just standing two people away from James Shields that day at, at, at Charlottesville. Right. And then, you know, what happened at Charlottesville became a disaster for people on the alt-right and the neo-Nazi types. And so Vanguard America promptly fell apart, mostly, you know, with infighting, you know, and finger pointing. Right. And as a result, Rousseau decided to form his own organization. Of course, at the time, he was only 18 or 19 years old, right? Right. A very young guy. But he's been really uh, assiduous and continuing to organize. And, and yeah, he went through a few names and finally settled on Patriot Front, which was very much... uh, you know, it's a name that they use to kind of create confusion because we've had the Patriot Movement, of course, for many years, which is not neo-Nazi, but it is very far right. The militia movement is what the media calls it, but they've always called themselves the Patriot Movement. Right. And he devised the name Patriot Front as a way of attracting what he called fence-sitters, you know, the people who might join a militia mm-hmm. And uh, but uh, still needed to be radicalized. Right, right. So it was a strategically chosen name. And so that's why they chose it. And But they've mostly been really, I mean, 
Rousseau is the guy in charge of everything. He's really a controlling, hyper-authoritarian individual. They've had some of their materials have been uh, doxxed or or exposed, some of their uh, internal conversations and notes. We've gotten video of them doing training sessions that uh, make them look like kind of clueless buffoons. (laughs) Right. They're not the best and the brightest. Yeah, a lot of them are suburban white boys who resent the fact that the world didn't get handed to them. Right. But they're, yeah, they're not really physically capable of a whole lot of harm. But collectively, they probably could do some harm. So. Yeah, and I thought that was a pretty smart branding choice on his part to use something that looked enough like the American flag that if you weren't looking really close, you would think, oh, they're marching with American flags. But then you get up close and you realize, oh, that's not old glory. That's something else altogether. Yep. Rousseau definitely strikes me as a pretty intelligent guy. Yeah, yeah. For all of his awful personality traits. Well, intelligent in a really limited way. He definitely seems like he's got a plan. Yeah, I think he he's actually fairly typical of a lot of right-wing extremist organizers. And I mean, people really underestimate them because they think they're all stupid. But the guys, especially the ones on top, are actually pretty intelligent people. They're often well-educated, but they're really limited in the breadth and depth of their intellects and their their the ability to organize right. things. So they have huge blind spots, and it's fairly typical for most right-wing extremists that A lot of them are intelligent, but they think they're more intelligent than they actually are. That always seems to be the downfall of these guys. And what you were saying about the infighting and the schism seems to be kind of like the song of their people. It's always Mm -hmm. schisms, infighting, lack of unity. They'll start an organization and within a few months, they're all calling each other feds and Jews and they're splitting up. And this is a constant pattern that's happened amongst groups like this ever since there's been groups like this, as far as I know. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is that that's always been the reason, I mean, honestly, for the most of the 30 years or so that I've been reporting about these guys, about right-wing extremists, that's been sort of our safety net, as it were, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's why, a lot of why uh, they've never really been able to gain traction in the U.S. is that, that they, uh, I mean, if you meet them in person, they're all singularly unpleasant people who are contentious and argumentative and right. And so they don't get along very well with each other. And they have huge, the leaders in particular have huge egos. Right. So the ability to form a mass movement has always been really limited by the sort of endemic nature of the kinds of people, the personalities that these movements attract, which is that they're they're all a bunch of nasty people who can't really get along with anybody. (laughs) You know, that's been our, that's sort of been our saving grace for years. The one factor that we've always known, you know, Chip Burley and I used to sit around and talk about this, how, you know, we've been lucky because of this factor. But the one thing that always in, in places where, fascist movements succeed is when they have uh, a dynamic charismatic leader around whom they can all revolve and who sort of serves the purpose of um, mollifying and ameliorating the differences between the various factions because they become all focused on, um, you know, dedication to the glorious leader. 
Right. And so we, you know, America was pretty lucky until Donald Trump came along. So, right. So you mentioned that one of the things that they're very into is being authoritarian personalities. And the other thing that they're very into is figuring out a way to monetize these things as soon as they start doing them. You wrote this up for Daily Coast in an article entitled Patriot Front's Neo-Fascist Spread, a Product of Rousseau's White Nationalist Pyramid Scheme. And what's fascinating is that you talk about the idea that he's making his people buy quotas of flyers and quotas of stencils and billing them, according to the internal chats that have leaked, exorbitant amounts of money for this stuff. Can you elaborate a little bit on how these guys have always tried to figure out a way to get paid from this kind of activism that they do? Sure. Well, I mean, it's kind of the same thing with Alex Jones, right? Right. (laughs) Supplements. Supplements. Yes, exactly. (laughs) How do you monetize stuff that is not easily marketed? And, you know, basically, yeah, they find other ways to, to... draw it in and you know with authoritarian movements like patriot front they're also doing things that are you know designed to draw in the rubes and pull in authoritarian personalities i mean key the first component of authoritarian personality is authoritarian submission which is you know submitting to the will of the authoritarian leader and so you know rousseau has definitely leveraged that over the years I mean, he not only requires them to buy his gear, uh, go out and do the banners and stuff like that. You know, if you want to remain a member of Patriot Front, they have a monthly check-in for these guys. You know, it's not just uh, buying the stuff. It's also, you know, you got to do your workouts, got to do you know your physical workouts. Right. Yeah, go lift weights, as well as, you know, you got to watch your diet. And then, of course, you also need to go out and hoist some freeway banners and paste up some flyers around town and then finally participate in the marches. These are the requirements for being members of Patriot Front. And so all these guys that showed up in D.C. this weekend, for instance, were mostly uh, also doing their part to meet their monthly quota of activist behavior. Right. And that's why they all show up with masks on. Rousseau doesn't care if he wears a mask, so he never wears one because uh, he kind of wants his face out. Right, because he becomes the face of the movement at that point. Yeah, Everybody right. else is replaceable but him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, it was really peculiarly satisfying watching them all sitting there on that berm of grass in Coeur d'Alene with their masks on and looking <laughs> terribly depressed and defeated. and. Uh, downcast you know it was like damn guys (laughs) think about your life choices you know (laughs) yeah and it says something about why these people all fear it yeah yeah they're all so scared to get identified and another point why this work is so important yeah because we know what really gets to them we know what really makes them want to go home like you said and reevaluate their life choices and it's having their name and face broadcast to the world yeah. Like, you're allowed to have these beliefs. That's cool. We're just going to tell everybody you have these beliefs. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. A lot of reporters did follow up with some of these guys that were arrested in Coeur d'Alene, like Jared Boyce, the Utah guy. 
Right. And inquired about, well, have you, uh, do you have any second thoughts now about being part of Patriot Front? And they all doubled down. They all said, no, no, I'm actually more loyal than ever. I'm, I know that the, this is just the deep state trying to oppress us and blah, 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 blah. Which is fairly typical of authoritarian personalities that never admit when they're wrong. Nope. Nope. They definitely don't. I don't know if you saw the video that was going viral of them this weekend in New York of them (laughs) trying to get through the subway. It was pretty awesome. These guys were just absolutely defeated by a subway turnstile in New York City. They couldn't get through it. They were all having all kinds of trouble. Finally, one of these guys like holds it open and lets the entire group go through one thing. And it has this sort of effect of making them look like a bunch of like hapless, almost Benny Hill type goofballs that can't figure out how to do any of this kind of stuff. But at the same time, it's not great to minimize the amount of violence that a group of, you know, a hundred of these guys could and tried to get up to in Coeur d'Alene over that weekend of pride. Right. You know, you can laugh at the comedy antics, but. Ultimately, this is the same ideology that drove the uh, mass shooter in Buffalo. So, I mean, I mean, he wasn't a Patriot front member, but it, it was the same, you know, replacement theory, white genocide, white nationalist BS. And the more it spreads, the more you're more of this uh, really terrible violence is going to take place. And yeah, I, I got a kick out of the uh, turnstile thing. Of course, I, you know, I've been to New York only a handful of times myself. And uh, I, I'll have to admit, the first time through, it took me a minute to figure out the turnstile. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Uh, once you figure it out, you're fine, right? But these guys had clearly never been to New York City, right? And yeah, it was you know it's kind of funny hearing Rousseau. Who he was asked uh, by a reporter, uh, "Why did you pick New York City?" And they said, "Well, I admire the architecture." <laughs> uh, what they were doing, of course, was going down to try to stir up. They frequently call uh, New York City Jew York City, oh, right? Of and they were going there to stir up the Jewish population. Absolutely. And yeah, and frighten and intimidate them. I mean, this is ultimately what these marches are about is an attempt to A, raise their profile and B, uh, threaten and intimidate non-white minorities. Right. That's what it's about. And it seemed like their profile got a huge raise over the weekend as well when Owner of Twitter, still not calling it X, Elon Musk decided to wade himself into the are these guys actually feds or a psyop controversy. And he went ahead and did his typical reply guy thing, amplified this ridiculous shit to his 169 million followers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah, a lot of people have said this, but Elon's got more reach than any of them altogether, I think. Right. How much worse would you say Twitter's gotten since this guy bought it? Uh, it's become like Gab. No, it's become a real cesspit. But it's it's unlike Gab. It's a, it's really large. Right. The Gab, of course, is the white nationalist friendly form of Twitter that uh, some people started back about four years ago. Yeah. It's become a real cesspit. We've got a lot of IDs out there with names like you know hates n-word and stuff uh-huh. like that uh, in the right in the name itself and a lot of peppy stuff and a lot of neo-nazi material uh being flagrantly 
circulated on Twitter now and nothing's done about it. Yeah, there's almost no point anymore in reporting any of this. Right. Well, it's not a surprise to me that most of my advertisements on Twitter these days are, you know, from bizarre little obscure companies Mm -hmm. just barely doing any kind of business at all. Yeah. I mean, I would have to think that at some point he's gonna this he's gonna run aground on the financial hole he's driven them into. But in the meantime, we're having to put up with this stuff. Yeah, I responded to Musk on Twitter. I, I saw that. Well, I mean, the crazy thing that he asked, why weren't they unmasked? And I said everything. <laughs> I pointed out to him, and I linked to the Twitter thread that I had that had all the the mug shots that I took that day. And I said, every single one of these guys was unmasked that day. Hey, dummy. We know all of who they are. We know not just who they are, but where they live and what they were doing there that day. I mean, what Musk is doing is, what's actually really interesting about it to me is that he's not just doing alternative facts in spreading misinformation. He's doing stuff that's directly counterfactual. Mm -hmm. He he is getting out there and, and... blatantly lying to his readers. Yes. And he leaves it up, even though he had multiple people point out to him that, no, 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 these guys were all identified. They were all unmasked that day. And he doesn't respond to it. He doesn't take his post down saying that, well, why weren't they unmasked, you know? And what can you do about that? I mean, it's the... Probably one of the most powerful men in the world putting out, like I say, not just misinformation, but counterfactual information. Right. And he's been doing this for years, but now there's no brakes on this guy at this point. It's all gas. Just whatever it is, the last thing he read that seems halfway interesting, he retweets it and we're off to the fucking races on this. It's crazy. Well, honestly, I I think the Elon Musk bus has long since crashed through the guardrails and gone over the cliff <laughs> and is into the abyss. And we're just kind of waiting for the bus to hit bottom at this point. Yeah. Just shit posting all the way down, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Hoping that it's not going to be too terrible when it happens. Yeah. It's just the, the problem with abysses is that the, the, you never know where the bottom is. It's going to be a long ways away. Right. I mean, I would have thought the bottom would have been six months ago. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I was thinking it was going to be done then. Yeah. So yeah. It keeps yeah. going. When you lost all those millions in advertising, uh, you would have thought, I mean, a, a normal business would go back, whoa, okay, let's rethink this strategy, you know, but he doesn't. No. You know, it, it feeds into my own kind of. I guess you could call it a conspiracy theory that I believe that, you know, the billionaires of the world are really intent on destroying democracy by any means necessary. And I think Musk is one of them. I think they're intent on taking democracy down, replacing it with business-oriented authoritarian rule that does nothing but give them tax breaks and hands, hands the keys to society over to the billionaires. And that's, I think, what they're doing. And I think that's what Musk is doing. Pretty hard to argue against that at this point, definitely. If you look at their behavior, you look at the idea of all of these guys now own huge media outlets or alternative media outlets like Twitter, and they're able to make the narrative pretty much whatever they want to make the narrative on any given day. Yeah. It's very, very terrifying. Well, I've got to tell you, ever since I left corporate news work back in uh, 2000, I have been an advocate for outlawing corporate media ownership. 
I don't think the corporations should own our media. I don't think that they should control our information space. Because, you know, you get that, get to the situation. I mean, Fox News is a perfect example of it, where you make profit by dividing society. Yeah. Their whole revenue stream is built on creating divisions in our society and tearing the country apart. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's not he- obviously not healthy for democracy <laughs> or, or for anybody, but it certainly is healthy for uh, authoritarian rule because that's how authoritarian rule works. Yeah. And people don't understand that this was not always the case as recently as like probably the 80s and 90s news departments existed as loss leaders. Yeah. You make the money up somewhere else in your coverage. The news was designed to inform people. It was almost like a civic responsibility for a lot of these people. Was it sometimes not accurate? Yes, absolutely. But go back and compare that to what we're seeing now. Right. Yeah, it's something else altogether. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, think about all the local news that has just vanished over the last 30 years. Oh, yeah. Uh, all these small new- newspapers got bought up. I mean, th- that was my line of work. I started out in small papers and worked my way up the ladder. Right. And that, you know, back in those days, investing in newspapers and, and local media, or even, you know, in, in this included even larger papers like, you know, Seattle Times, LA Times, New York Times. Sure. It was like investing in bonds. You could count on a steady 8 to 10%. Uh, annual return, right? Not not big returns, but it was steady and it was reliable. And that's what people right. invested in, in newspapers back then. And then when corporations began taking over, I mean, all the little papers that I worked at all got snapped up by these large media conglomerates. And immediately what happened at the papers that I worked at was that we were no longer expected to produce 8 to 10% annual profits, but instead we were expected to produce 15 to 20%. And that was a huge difference because it meant that the corporate, the newsroom budgets were considerably constricted. Yeah, Advertising became the primary objective of the newspapers. Um, so advertising staffs got bolstered, but newsroom staffs got gutted. And of course, the first ones to go are the reporters and journalists who do stuff that embarrasses the ownership, like, you know, environmental reporting and investigative reporting and consumer reporting. Yeah. All those things were the first thing gutted. But eventually all of these little papers just became tiny little shells of, you know, news wrap full of prefabricated stories with a dash or two of local reporting from you know, the paper would have maybe one or two reporters left uh, who could go cover county council and the cops and courts beat. Yeah. That's what became of local media. And it's no wonder that it, that those newspapers all went, or, you know, if they haven't gone belly up yet, they're heading, heading there, right? Absolutely. So that's part of the scene. So the one thing that keeps going around about Patriot Front that we, we touched on it a little bit earlier, the idea that people want to keep saying that they're feds. And the one kind of constant about white supremacist groups, white nationalist groups, is that they all tend to be very riddled with federal informants. Because as we've discussed, these aren't nice people 
a lot of the time the feds can get next to one of these people and say, hey, you're either going to jail on that child pornography we found on your phone or you can tell us about what this group is up to. Right. So the idea that I think some people might be conflating fed informant with fed agent mm -hmm. is about the only even sort of good faith argument I can see out of this. You've been covering these kinds of groups, like we've said, for decades now. How often do you find that they are mostly comprised of the former, the fed informant types? Oh, pretty rarely. You know, uh, I would say that um, the the Fed informants there typically are. You know, it depends on the size and viciousness of the organization. Right. You know, the Aryan nations always had a few fed, federal informants operating within their ranks. You know, the most famous one was probably uh, the the informant who was responsible for the arrest of. Randy Weaver in 92 that wound up leading to the Ruby Ridge standoff. Right. He was an ex-biker who talked Randy into sawing off a shotgun. Right. I, I haven't yet met an informant yet who would actually make an actual agent. They're all, they're, most of them are kind of loser types who, uh, yeah, get caught up in the web. And the reason Ruby Ridge happened was that they were trying to make Randy become an informant for them and he just flat, right. flatly refused and so they said okay well we're gonna bust you instead and they did and then he wound up mm -hmm. fleeing his court appearances and holding up on ruby ridge and the rest is history but yeah the most of the informants i've seen are either you know guys who can cr credibly who appear to be credible within the group like i say the right. ex-biker who was Weaver's informant, or someone who fits their fantasies. Now, one case that I did cover in the 90s, the Washington State Militia Group, they were busted by an actual undercover FBI agent who was, was uh, Michael German. He now works for the Brennan Justice Center. Michael shows up to the Washington State Militia, and he's got some fake neo-Nazi tattoos on his arms and convinces these guys that he's a gun runner from Southern California and that he can hook them up with all kinds of weaponry and stuff like that. And then Mike then proceeded to, they called him Rock. <laughs> that was his group name, Rock. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't, he not only set them up with a meeting space, he, he, he like paid for, or they paid for this, large where or this warehouse for them all to meet in where they could do their mob making classes <laughs> and things like that. I'm sure it was wired for sound too. Places just loaded with cameras and recording equipment, which we saw the fruits of during the trials that followed. You know, this stuff was all shown in court. Mm -hmm. And then finally after they had gathered enough material to obtain a conviction for these guys. I mean, they were, these guys were planning to blow up a railroad tunnel. They were planning to assassinate local reporters and uh, county and city officials, as well as, uh, a, a, you know, set off by bombs in a number of places. Yeah, it's still my favorite bust story. I, I don't know if you know the story, but everybody would come to these meetings and each member was sort of expected to take a turn teaching the group their particular area of expertise. 
Several guys did bomb making classes. One guy did a class in how to, you know, make a pipe bomb out of PVCs and stuff like that. So then one day they show up and it's and it's Rock's turn and he has a box full of handcuffs and he says, I'm gonna show you guys how to get out of handcuffs without a key. And they go, Ooh, that's cool. Let's do that. <laughs> so he goes around and clicks the handcuffs on all of them. And then when he's done, he pulls out his FBI badge and says, You're all under arrest. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been amazing yeah. to watch <laughs> wow he actually they didn't show that in court i had to track mike down and ask him if that was actually what happened and he's he says well he was very modest about it but apparently he's kind of a legend in the fbi for having pulled that off <laughs> yes i would think that would Instant legend status for you at that point when you can talk a whole bunch of these guys into cuffing themselves. <laughs> it's just uh, supreme excellence in the art of war consists on subduing the enemy without fighting. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So your most recent book is called The Age of mm-hmm. Insurrection, and you explain in said book how clusters of far-right libertarians and white supremacist groups like Patriot Front have managed over the last few decades to gain enough power to pose a somewhat legitimate threat to American democracy. And, you know, we've had, you know, to talk about this before, it's an absolute must read for understanding where we find ourselves right now. (laughs) And you were pretty pessimistic when you wrote that. (laughs) How would you say you're feeling now? Has anything changed? Well, I mean, most of my pessimism has to do with the fact that nobody's paying any attention to it. And I don't think that's changed a lot. I don't think people recognize the, the nature of the threat. I mean, this is something that sort of comes out of having studied domestic terrorism for a long time, because the whole objective of terrorists, the reason they do it isn't that they believe that their act will actually set an immediate spark. But what they're trying to do is undermine public confidence in the ability of government to keep them safe and secure. Right. The whole purpose of domestic terrorism is to make people believe that the government can't keep them safe from this kind of terrorist violence. And that's fundamentally the same thing that that we're seeing with all these little what i call 100 little insurrections is that these people don't believe that they'll actually take it down but they're undermining the public's sense of confidence that the government will keep things running and and safe and secure right and i think they're you know that the, they're still obviously very much doing that and i do think that the you know, the public's sense of security continues to be undermined, continues to erode. And the more that that happens, the more we're in danger. Because when people don't believe the government can keep them safe anymore, they uh, reverting to an authoritarian control, you know, it's the first thing within reach. And it's how people kind of naturally react. So... Let's put it this way. I, I was, I mean, I don't, I don't think these guys really will succeed, but I do think that there's going to be a lot of people that get hurt. I think there's going to be people killed. I think there's going to be real damage to our system of government. 
And uh, especially if Trump gets reelected. Yeah, yeah. And that's just a scary, scary possibility. Yeah, yeah. I think we're in for some really bad times. Definitely. So, yeah, I think that, honestly, it's, it's just, I, I think some of it's just a product of having been sort of diving into these online sewers of right-wing extremism on a daily basis that kind of led to my pessimism. But I that hasn't really changed a lot. But, you know, and the biggest problem is that most people, I would say most of the people that I know, just within my own social circle, are quite oblivious to all this stuff. They really don't pay attention. Uh, they don't really think it's important. And, uh, uh, and I think we're going to pay a price for that. Yeah, yeah, it's um, looking that way, definitely. If we don't kind of put some eyes on this and say, we got to be aware of this, we've got to be taking the steps that'll not allow this to thrive, it's going to come back and get us. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm as disgusted by what's happened in Israel and Palestine as anyone. I, I'm totally opposed to genocide on from anybody. But there's this whole faction of the left that is using it to attack Biden. Right. You know, and the Brianna Grace who say, well, yeah, you know, Trump wasn't that bad and maybe he'd be better. And, uh, you know, and uh, if nothing else, we would teach liberals uh, to, you know, put up somebody who could actually, who actually responds to us. But honestly, I don't think any person, there's any politician who would ever satisfy their every demand. No, no. And there would always find some reason to not vote for that person, you know, especially in the Democratic Party. Well, a lot of these people, they don't live in the real world and they want to be on this side of things. They want to be on the, you know, the barricades, as it were. They've got this fantasy about it. And it's like, that's... Not something anyone who's ever studied it really thinks is a good idea. Well, I, I think they more want to just uh, have the opportunity to be self uh, performatively self-righteous, frankly. Right. I mean, it's kind of like a reverse image of what we deal with with the right. You know, the right, people on the extremist right, it, it's really a constant that I come across when studying and writing about them is that they, they really see themselves as heroic. They see themselves as saving America. And a lot of what they do, which includes, you know, in some cases, actual mass murder, you know, like the guys who go out and commit murder in the name of the Great Replacement, they all see themselves as heroes uh, saving America. That's been true of every domestic terrorist I ever wrote about, that I ever studied or, you know, in some cases interviewed. They all see themselves as heroes. And the left has a tendency to attract these same kind of narcissistic uh, personality, top very toxic personalities mm-hmm. who are intent on being seen as heroic themselves. And so they do these sort of performative, you know, well, I'm, you know, idiosync- I'm going to be the idiosyncratic one and say no to, I'm going to be on the left and say no to Joe Biden, you know, right? Well, great, go ahead and do that. But you know, you're, you know, you that what you're doing is helping to elect Trump. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they go, well, you're just blackmailing me. And it's like, no, no, that's just the system. You, you have a very pragmatic choice. I mean, Joe Biden is by no means my ideal what a president should look like. But I know that 
that if I don't go out and vote for him, if I don't support him, and if I spend all my time criticizing him, that I'm ultimately enabling the Trumps of the world. And, you know, this is a pragmatic choice. You can either do the right thing or you can do the selfish thing. Yes. And a lot of people just do the selfish thing. I liked Bernie too, but I could see pretty clearly on once that Trump was the nominee that, of course, I was in the middle of research doing a a pile of research that was ultimately published in Mother Jones in October 2016 about how Trump was energizing and and helping to empower uh, all of these white supremacists, white radicals, the alt-right, as we called it at the time, all of these elements. And that I knew that if, you know, if he won, that they were going to be in power. And, you know, so, uh, I mean, yeah, I wasn't a big Hillary fan either, but I sure was happy to vote for her. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like, sometimes you have to make that pragmatic choice. You have to look at the idea and say, if I don't vote for this person, I'm likely to get this person, regardless of who I actually vote for. I'm likely to get this person yeah. over here. I really don't want this person over here worse than I don't want just about. Right, that. right. It's a binary so choice. I need to yeah. do the thing that's the adult thing. Yeah. You know, voting is not a matter of expressing your deep personal convictions. Voting is a, ultimately a pragmatic exercise in democracy. And you need to vote according right. to what's going to produce the best real world results for you. And if anybody thinks that, allowing Trump to obtain office is going to be the best real world result for anybody on the left. Uh, They got another thing coming, you know? Absolutely. David, thank you for joining me today. Appreciate your taking the time. As always, you have a great rest of your day. Hey, good talking to you, Griff. We'll have to talk together some more sometime. Indeed we will. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the did nothing wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can find us on the web at didnothingwrongpod.com. Please make sure you subscribe to get our content straight into your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at GrizzaBJJ, G-R-Z-A-B-J-J, as well as DNWPod. We're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that allow us to keep doing this important work. Thanks, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.